Well, our friends, as a church, we are thinking about our vision um, at the moment. And last week, if you're with us, it was our, our Vision Sunday. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to really try and make clear was that what is most important is not so much our vision, uh, the plans that we come up with, but what is more important, much more important, is God's vision and his plans. Um, that is ultimately what matters. And uh, so what that means for us is that we need to make sure that whatever plans it, it we come up with, uh, that ultimately they serve God's plan and his vision. So how do we know what God's vision is? Well, in his kindness, he has revealed it to us. Uh, The Bible is his revelation uh, about himself and about his plans for the world and uh, that he has made and that he rules over. And one of the places where God's plans are on display Um, is in this last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And so just for the next couple of weeks, uh, we're going to just be dipping into these early chapters of Revelation and listening to these words of what Jesus says to his church. Um, Chapters 2 and 3 are letters uh, from Jesus to his church. Uh, And as we listen to these letters, well, we'll ask, well, what is Jesus' vision for the church? What is his vision? And so what does that mean for us and our church? And I'm um, listening to these letters. I think it's a, maybe a little bit like taking your car to the mechanic. Uh, you know, we um, get our car serviced either when, you know, the six or 12 months rolls around or else, you know, that little, well, the, the number comes up on the odometer that's, you know, that's written in that little um, uh, sticker on the top of the windscreen. That's when we take it. But the, re- the reason to go to the mechanic is so that it can get a good check over. Now, it's good to have someone who knows what they're doing Uh, to take a good look at it and to tell you if things are going okay, uh, but also to tell you if there's things that need to get fixed, Uh, even to warn you about things that might become a problem sometime down the track. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, but I think that's kind of how these letters uh, from Jesus to his church in Revelation function. Uh, Jesus looks at his church and he gives them an honest assessment. Uh, We'll see that he tells them things that are going well. Uh, He tells them things that are not going so well, uh, things that need to get fixed uh, so that they can make changes now so that they will continue to be his church into the future. So that's what we're going to be thinking about uh, over the next couple of weeks. And uh, the first message that we've just heard read is uh, to the church in Ephesus. And we see that the message uh, to them... uh, is to stay true to their first love. To stay true to their first love. Now, if you just look over it, in chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters. Uh, They're written to seven real places, real churches that were meeting together in the first century. Um, These are all located in what we might call Asia Minor. This is the western end of Turkey today. And all of these words, uh, or this vision that was given to John... Uh, was was given in around the year 90 AD. Um, So this is about 60 years after Jesus' ministry and his life and death and resurrection and ascension. Um, It's also about 40 years then after these churches would have been planted when they began. Um, So last term, if you're with us, we were looking at the book of Acts, uh, the last few chapters in Acts, and we saw Paul on those missionary journeys, uh, taking the gospel to all of these new places and lots of new churches uh, being planted and um, brand new churches being born. Well, this is now 40 years on. 
And so these uh, letters, these messages from Jesus, they come to these churches that are now uh, quite well established. They've been meeting for several decades. And the question then is, well, how are they going? Uh, Are things going well? Or are there things that need a bit of a tune-up? Are there some things that need changing or fixing? Uh, That's kind of what we see as Jesus sends a message to them. Now, they're only very short letters. Uh, Most of them are just six or seven verses. Um, Different things are said to each uh, of the churches, but there's kind of a a fairly um, common pattern uh, or structure to each of them. So this is set out in your newsletter if you're taking some notes there. Um, They all begin by saying who the letter is to, uh, then by by who it's from, uh, and, then, and that gives us a description of Jesus from that amazing vision uh, in chapter 1. Uh, then there's usually a commendation, something good that they're doing that Jesus uh, speaks about. But then there's usually a complaint, uh, something that's going on in the church that Jesus has against them. Uh, that's followed then by a call, some action that they need to take Uh, And then finally, each letter finishes with a a word of promise, really a beautiful promise uh, given to those who belong to Jesus and his church. So that's kind of the typical structure that you can see as you look at each of the letters. Um, Not always like that. A couple of times, uh, like for the church in uh, Smyrna and Philadelphia, to those churches, there's no complaint. So very high rating from Jesus for them. Uh, but then later in the last letter to Laodicea, well, there's, well, it's only complaint. Uh, there's nothing good that Jesus has to say about them, only words of warning. Now, how do we apply these words to us? Because they're written to those churches back then. Um, how does that apply to us? Well, a couple of different approaches that people have had. Um, one way is that maybe these churches represent um, the Christian church throughout Um, history Uh, and so it's kind of like um, through successive ages of church history that's what each of them represent Um, I don't think that's really the way to go I think it's probably really a minority view Um, probably a more popular way is really just to pick out one of the letters that you think might be most appropriate for your church Um, and no doubt there's some letters here that speak more or less uh, directly to different churches Um, But I think a better way really is to look at all the letters and to not be selective but to recognise that that these are all Jesus' words to all of his churches. Uh, He speaks these words to every church, in every place, in every time. And so for us here at St Aidan's, well, we want to hear all of what Jesus says. And when there are uh, commendations uh, that are true of us, well, we should be encouraged by those things. But then when, when there are words of complaint that are also true of us, well, we should be warned about those things. So we want to listen to all of what Jesus says to us, the encouragements as well as the challenges, and to respond to them in repentance and faith. So um, let's jump into it. We start um, today looking mainly at this uh, letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, please do follow along there. So chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, it begins there by saying, now this, um, sorry, to, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. That's the introduction. Um, that's how all of the letters begin. And angel could mean angel. Um, it could also mean maybe messenger, uh, someone who, who delivers uh, the letter to the church. 
Um, but quite clearly, the letter is written to the church in Ephesus. Now, what do we know about Ephesus? Uh, well, we know it was a big city. Um, at the time, it was probably a quarter of a million people uh, population, so quite a big city for uh, that time. It was also a very wealthy city. Uh, we know that the church there is probably now about 40 years old. Uh, so back in Acts 19 that we saw last term, we, we saw Paul's ministry there. He had quite a long ministry, stayed there about two and a half years, uh, serving the church there. And we know that in that time, many people uh, came to Jesus. And that's how the church began. Many people turned away from false gods and put their trust in Jesus. Now, we also know from the New Testament that Paul writes a letter, the letter to the Ephesians, uh, to this church. Um, as well, uh, we know that Timothy uh, is ministering in Ephesus uh, after Paul and the letters of 1 and 2 Timothy are sent uh, to him when he was, is the pastor, really, in, in Ephesus. So the Ephesian church, it really does feature quite largely in the New Testament. Um, it's also the closest church geographically to where John uh, is imprisoned on the island of Patmos when he writes this letter. So it's really not surprising, I think, that the first letter from Jesus is addressed uh, to the church in Ephesus. And um, that's the next thing we see, who it's from. Uh, that it is from the risen, reigning Lord Jesus. And we know that this message comes from him because in each of the letters, after saying who it is to, it then has this phrase, these are the words of. And what's then given, uh, if you take a look there, um, it says these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Which if you remember from chapter 1, well, that is how Jesus is described. And the lampstands are a, a symbol of the church. Uh, Jesus is the one who walks among them and he holds the stars, the messages, in his hand. So at the beginning of each of the letters is um, some description of Jesus that takes us back to that amazing vision that John had of Jesus in chapter 1. Uh, this vision of him risen and reigning on his throne uh, having now been given all power and authority. And so at the beginning of these letters, it's saying this is who it's from. It's from this Jesus, the risen one, the king, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who loves his church, the one who has freed us from our sins by his blood and the one who calls us to be faithful to him. And for the church then in Ephesus, well, Jesus firstly has words of commendation. Uh, so see verse 2. Uh, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So several things there that the church is commended for. They've, uh, firstly, they've worked hard. Uh, they've also rejected false teaching and they've persevered, they've kept going. And I think it's worth um, just really pausing on that and acknowledging that these are all good things that Jesus is glad to see happening in his church. This is part of his vision for his church. First, he loves to see people 
working hard for him. So for those of you who are working hard for him, whether that's here at church or in your workplace or in your family or in the community, well, know this, Jesus sees your work. He sees your service. Uh, Maybe at times it feels like no one noticed that effort that you put in. You know, no one came up and said thank you. Well, friends, know this, Jesus knows. He sees. And really, that should be all that matters because all of our work is for him. So he commends them for this. He knows their hard work. He knows their perseverance. Also, he knows and he commends them for their commitment to the truth. So verse 2, again, uh, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. And this is kind of expanded a little bit more if you look down to verse 6, where it says this, you have this in your favour, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So along with their hard work, well, the second thing Jesus commends them for is that they hold firmly to the gospel, that they have uh, rejected false teaching and false ideas. Now, it mentions there in verse 6 the practice of the Nicolaitans. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the Nicolaitans. (laughs) We don't know uh, exactly what it was that they taught. Um, I think there is a bit of a clue um, in the other letter that we read earlier, the letter to Pergamum, Uh, because the same group are mentioned there, if you you look over there in verse 15. Um, But in that letter, it's actually in the complaint part, because in that church, there are some who hold to the teaching of this group. Now, the best clue, I think, for understanding the kind of thing they might have taught is in the verse just above that, in verse 14, uh, where Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. So a bit of homework for you this week. Um, Go home and can read the story of Balaam and Balak uh, from Numbers chapter 22. It's quite a famous story in the Old Testament, mainly because of uh, Balaam's talking donkey. Uh, But the story really is about the failure of God's people. Um, Balak, who was the king of Moab, Uh, He wanted to um, destroy God's people, the Israelites, so he finds uh, this prophet for hire named Balaam and uh, he hires him to put curses on God's people Israel. But every time Balaam tries to speak a curse, the only words that God allows to come out of his mouth are words of blessing. So it really backfires. Um, But then um, Balaam comes up with another approach, a bit more subtle. Uh, Well, he suggests that the Moabite women seduce the Israelite men and in that way lead them to worship the idols of Moab. And, and, and that is what happens. They are seduced and they, in that way, begin to worship foreign gods. Now, how does that help explain uh, the teaching of the Nicolaitans? Um, well, I think if their teaching is like the approach of Balaam, then probably what they're teaching is something quite subtle, um, some subtle way of leading people into idolatrous worship. It's probably not that they're just saying some you know, obvious uh, false doctrine, probably not denying the resurrection of Jesus or his deity or you know, something obvious like that. 
Instead, something much more subtle, maybe along the level of compromise, uh, probably advocating that it's okay for Christians to just go with the flow of some of the things that are happening in the culture around them. Now, one part of that would, in the first century would have been that there would have been all kinds of pressure for them to participate in worship of the emperor. And maybe the Nicolaitans were saying that it's okay for Christians to just go along with those practices and join in those things. But that's what Jesus uh, rebukes some in Pergamum for. And also for those back uh, in Ephesus, that's what the church in Ephesus is commended for, for how they have tested those things, how they've discerned the truth from the error, and they've rejected false teaching when they see it. And so this is part of Jesus' vision for his church, that it is a church that stands on the truth, that it rejects and exposes what is false. Because the gospel that we believe in, it, it is a truth claim. And as we live by the gospel, then we're not to compromise with worldly values and practices. So they're the uh, positive things that Jesus has to say about the church in Ephesus. They've worked hard, uh, they've committed, they're committed to the truth, they're um, persevering. Lots of good things to say. But as we continu- continue, <clears throat> well, Jesus also has a word against them. So take a look at verse 4. Jesus says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Now what does that mean, that they've forsaken the love that they had at first? Uh, There's probably two ways you could read it. It could be that they've um, lost the enthusiasm for Jesus that they had when they first became believers. But it could also be that the love that they had at first is, is about first in priority in their lives. That now that there is some other thing in their life that is a higher love for them than Jesus. And probably it's a combination of both. They, they used to love Jesus best. They had great enthusiasm for him. Uh, But now as time has gone on, well, they've started to love other things more. Now they, you know, they haven't stopped serving Jesus. They're still working hard and they uh, they haven't been sucked in by any false doctrine. But it seems that they have been seduced by something. And uh, living in a prosperous city like Ephesus and living at a time when Well, there was some opposition, but not really any overt persecution. Well, I think the temptation that they would have faced is really the same kind of temptation that we face. It's the temptation to live for the things of this world and to love them and to find our hope and our security in them. Now, toward the end of uh, Revelation, there's a a picture of um, Babylon. And uh, and Babylon stands for the world and its wealth and its priorities. And the temptation for us as God's people as we live in this world with um, Babylon all around us, well, the temptation is to drink its intoxicating wine. And see, Babylon is where God is replaced by money and all of the things that it offers. And And all of the things that we should 
uh, look to God for, for our, our security, for our joy? Well, Babylon says you can find all of that in me. It says you can find your security in your superannuation and your mortgage. It says trust in that. It says find your joy in the experiences that I can give. And like the church in Ephesus, you know, we might pride ourselves on not letting our theology be infected by worldly ideas. But the question that Revelation keeps asking is, well, have we kept our lives from being infected by worldly priorities? Uh, You know, Tim Keller, I think, has uh, been very helpful in highlighting for us how um, the things of this world, good things like our our jobs, our assets, our, uh, our relationships, he says how all of those good things can really become what we look to and and become our our functional saviour. What he means by that is that they are the things that we begin to look to and and live for. And rather than living for Jesus and finding him to be our all-sufficient saviour, we start to look to the things of the world around us. We look to, to Babylon and we begin to love its promise of salvation more than we love Jesus. And friends, if that has happened for us, well, then Jesus calls his people, he, he calls his church to repent. Uh, in these words to Ephesus, see there verse 5? He says, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So what what must they do? What what must we do? Well, the call there is really to do two things. The first is to repent. Um, The way it's phrased later in chapter 18 of Revelation, the call is to come out of Babylon. See, if we've been sucked in and seduced by Babylon and its promises, if we have drunk its wine, then the call is to turn away from that and to do the things that you did at first, which means... Again, to look to Jesus as your saviour. Now that's what we did at first. And see, repenting is not just turning away, but it's also turning to. Uh, We turn away from our sin and living for and trusting in the things of this world and we turn to Jesus and we look to him. And when we do that, well, what kind of picture of Jesus do we see Well, we see here a vision of a saviour. A saviour who came to us, who gave himself for us, who rose and who now reigns and who offers us free of charge everything that you are looking for in Babylon. Friends, do the things you did at first. Turn to him. Fix your eyes on him. Because he really is an incomparable Saviour. Now, I came across recently an old sermon by an American theologian, um, Jonathan Edwards. Um, He preached this sermon in 1736, and uh, it had this title. um, He called it The Admirable Conjunction of Diverse Excellencies in Christ Jesus. That's going to be our next sermon series. 
Um, you know, he was a Puritan. That's really how they spoke. I mean, we'd probably just say, what makes Jesus so good? Uh, let, let me read you a little bit. He writes this. He says, What is there that you should desire in a saviour that is not in Christ? Or what about Jesus Christ would you like to be different? What excellency is missing? What is there that is great or good? What is there that is venerable or winning? What is there that is adorable or endearing? Or what can you think of that would be encouraging which is not to be found in the person of Christ. He says, would you have a saviour to be high and honourable because you're not willing to rely on a weak person? Well, is not Christ a person honourable enough to be worthy that you should be dependent on him? Would you not only have a saviour who is high and important, but would you not also have a saviour who has been made of low degree, that he might have experience of afflictions and trials, that he might learn by the things he has suffered to, p- to pity them that suffer and are tempted. And has Christ not been made low enough for you? Has he not suffered enough? Would you not only have him experience, have experience of the afflictions you now suffer, but also of that amazing anger that you fear hereafter, that he may know how to pity those that are in danger of the wrath of God. Well, this Christ has had experience of it, but a thousand times more than you have or any man living has faced. Would you have your saviour to be one who is near to God? And can you desire him to be nearer to God than his only begotten son who shares the same essence with the father? And you read it and it just goes on. You can look it up. I'll give you the title. I'm sure you didn't get to write that down. Um, but as it goes on, Edwards asks, well, can, can you think of or conceive of greater things that Christ has done? What is there wanting? Or what would you add if you could to make him more fit to be your saviour. And Edwards then just goes on for pages, making the simple point that Jesus Christ is an incomparable saviour. So friends, don't be sucked in by the counterfeit saviours of the world. The message of Jesus, the vision here from Jesus for us is that we fix our eyes on him. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the lamb who was slain but who now stands at the centre of the throne, who now stands among the lampstands and calls his people to look to him, to love him, to live for him. And for all who do, he gives this promise in verse 7. He says, To the one who is victorious, which means to the one simply who, who looks to Jesus and trusts in him, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So whoever has ears, let them hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray uh, that God would help us to listen to to that word. Let's um, pray. Our Father God, we do thank you for these, these words of Jesus to us. Lord, we do thank you for words of encouragement uh, in, in our service, in our, our faith, in our perseverance. And Lord, we thank you as well for words of challenge. And we ask that you would be at, at work in us by your spirit to make each of us and to make our, our church a people who, who do love Jesus first. Father, give us eyes to see him and to trust him today. And we ask those things in his name. Amen.